We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Breaking down Sean's rest of season wide receiver rankings. That's what we're going to talk about today on Stealing Bananas. Gretchen, fine. Stealing Signals newsletter at bengresh.substack.com. All of the signal and noise from week one up there. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You find all of his great work at Rotoviz. And it's funny, Sean, we were talking before we started recording here about last year we did some Sunday night stuff. I'm I had a little hard time with that with stealing signals right away Monday morning and Tuesday morning. We decided to kind of pivot away from that. You're going to be doing that with Colm Kelly this year on Sunday nights. That was an awesome show from you guys, you know, your immediate reactions, recapping everything. But we were talking before how we have about 10 hours worth of stuff. I've been so excited to chat with you about everything that happened across the NFL in week one. We're going to start with receivers, which you wrote up. You also wrote up, you know, a rest of season top 10 running backs list. Obviously, get subbed over at Rotoviz if you don't have that yet to get all of Sean's reactions every week. But this week, his rest of season rankings for how to react to week one. There's so much to talk about. We're going to, we're going to focus on, try to focus on receivers a little bit here, but yeah, good. It feels like it's been a month since we chatted. How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. The first week of the NFL season, it's just, it's like, it's unlike anything else. And so from that perspective, very excited. A handful of things we wanted to happen hit in a huge way. A handful of things we wanted to happen didn't hit or haven't hit yet. So we'll be on the edge of our seats for week two with those results. But mostly, it's just so much fun. I appreciate you mentioning the show I did with Colin. We had a good time with that. The the feedback was excellent. I appreciate everybody for listening. This is the great time to, to point out, Ben, that as you mentioned, but Stealing Signals, the first two articles are out. If you're a new subscriber to Stealing Signals, then now you know what all the fuss is about. If you haven't subscribed yet, I don't know what you're doing, but you want to make sure you get over there. You will understand what happened in week one if you read those pieces. So I I strongly encourage everyone. Ben, the other thing is just that I, I found myself in Ben Gretsch withdrawal. I tried to, to leave you alone so you could write those two pieces. I know <laughs> you write from morning to noon, but... I mean, you and I are just like everybody else, right? We watch the first week of games and we want to talk with our buddies. And yeah, it's like, is, is Ben going to message me? What's he going to think? What do you think our teams our teams did? So you mentioned 10 hours. I mean, we kind of want to just talk all day. We are going to try and keep these to some show length episodes, but yeah, I can't wait to hear what you think. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, 
I did. I, I almost messaged you several times because I, I mean, just uh, you're again. You gotta you gotta listen to the the episode with Colm if you get a chance. If you're not, if you're only listening to Stealing Bananas for whatever reason, get over to Road of His Overtime and and make sure you kept checking those Sunday night ones because Sean's rapid reactions are all are like one of my favorite things. So um, bum that we that I won't you know you know be getting those directly from you as much this year, but we we still have plenty of hot takes here. And we're talking receivers. One of the hot takes that we started talking about a little bit, I was curious to see where CeeDee Lamb would land. You moved him down to wide receiver 23. Pretty aggressive drop. You said to me before the show, you know, of all the things that went went well, that was the one where you were kind of like, what was I thinking? And I was like, I don't, I don't think – I think I have to own that a lot more than you because you were – pretty out on the Cowboys as a team throughout. I We talked a little bit about Dak. You were pretty off him. We didn't take him anywhere, even though he was fairly cheap. Pretty concerned about that offensive line, the way things might look for their whole for their whole team, because they didn't really build their team well this offseason. Not something we really got into the weeds on a ton, but when we talked about those second-tier receivers, Diggs and Adams and Lamb, you and I seem to be a little bit split throughout the offseason listeners will remember on Adams and Diggs. I was a little bit down on Adams, a little bit higher on Diggs. And then we both were kind of uncertain on Lamb. But for me, I feel like what was I thinking? Because I had Lamb in my initial rankings release or at some point early in my rankings in a in a tier behind Diggs and Adams starting the third tier. And I remember talking in like July, either on this show, maybe ship chasing a couple times about how I thought basically the tier from Lamb down to AJ Brown was sort of one tier and I didn't see Brown being much different than lamb, but I got more excited as you know, Dallas's rest of their situation in the past catching group didn't look great. And it's just, uh, you know, even though we've done this for so long, it's just another lesson learned of like, it was sort of a vacated targets mistake, right? Like Jalen Tolbert wasn't doing anything. It was clear that they're going to have like Noah Brown and guys like this running a lot of routes. And so lamb moved into that tier for me over time. And then just a week or so before the season, I actually moved him up to wide receiver four and was all excited about this massive amount of volume he had to get. I know, Sean, you made a... He a, did get 11 targets. He did get 11 targets. And you made a comment that he might lead the league in targets. He might still do that. But the two catches, even before Dak gets hurt, just nothing looks good in their, their entire offense. And that makes things a lot more difficult. There were slight positives with Lamb. He ran routes on 98% of dropbacks. We talked about that in the offseason, that he hasn't actually gotten the full route share. That was part of the situation with A.J. Brown as well, who we'll get to, I'm sure. But Lamb did get to run a ton of routes, and it seems like he's going to you know, gain those routes that he so far has not run You know, the full slate of routes. I think his career high is like low 500s, maybe like 515 routes in a season. In this offense, he should be running like 600 routes. And so there's this room for him to add like 100 routes. It's a pretty good percentage bump in terms of the routes he's running. But the efficiency stuff really matters. And he's been really efficient to this point. But this offense just looks like they're going to be so bad. And now obviously losing Dak. And then when you compare that to you being so right on Devontae Adams, I mean, there's nothing that I was, oh, man. I'm glad that I got some with you and I got some with Pat and Pete who were on him. I know big shout-out to to Peter Overzet who who always stayed very in on Adams when I was kind of put, trying to push us away over there. I just felt so sick to my stomach for 
you know, for my subscribers. I, I got a lot right in week one. I don't know why I'm starting with like the one thing that really bugged me. Like you said, there were so many things that I, you and I both had Saquon and Swift in the top five. And, uh, even the Ty Montgomery, DeAndre Carter stuff was was pretty funny. But I did have Lamb at wide receiver four, and I just felt sick for anyone who maybe drafted Lamb over Adams or Dix because both of their upside theses, theses looked so good. Adams in particular. It was funny. After Thursday night, you and I drafted again on Saturday, and you had talked about wanting to get a Diggs team because you're like, Diggs looked like – really what I was talking about was this idea that you know Ad, uh, Davis being a, more of a threat down the field might open up that shallower stuff for Diggs. We saw so many easy catches in the shallow area, and then he still hits on the deep touchdown. So everything for Diggs looked great, but then Adams looked even better. I mean, Adams looked like – he had a 40-something – what was it, 49% target share? I mean, he looked – completely unguardable i felt incredibly silly forever doubting that uh the, the the change of teams might limit how dominant he could be from a target perspective but holy cow that was an incredible game from him he looked really good i mean he's obviously not going to hit on that consistently that level of volume with darren waller there with hunter renfro underneath but he's a guy who over the last couple of seasons did lead the nfl with 10.8 targets per game he had four games in that stretch with 16 or more targets, obviously a lot of games and double figures. In week one, he goes for 17. Derek Carr, I think, can play better. The Raiders overall, I think, will evolve and emerge from some of these early season performances where, I mean, they've installed a new offense. They've got new pieces. When you have a new star wide receiver, a new head coach, you know, those two pieces coming from different schemes. You have the QB trying to, to thread the needle, kind of work through both things. There were a lot of positives. Since the Chargers didn't look that incredible, I was a little bit disappointed. A little bit I watched some of these games through the lens of a Chiefs fan where I'm always rooting for the best teams in the AFC West to lose. So I was rooting for the Raiders. The Chargers do seem like a little bit more of a threat but yeah, I mean, you look at Adams and his ability to get open. He's not going to be quite as efficient with Carr throwing him the ball, but you love to see, as you mentioned, those massive target shares. Uh, my initial thought after watching the Thursday night game too is exactly what you said, that Diggs looked like his 2020 self. He looks like the guy that we've referred to as the second coming of Antonio Brown. One of the main takeaways from week one is that especially if you have some of these zero RB teams hit on some of the guys and you know to this point some of my favorite zero RB candidates haven't hit I still have a lot of enthusiasm for most of them obviously it's sort of a, a really late pick like Amir Abdullah no longer looks very good most of them I still have a lot of enthusiasm for but already you know if you played a week this week where you have Cordero Patterson and Kareem Hunt in the game along with those star wide receivers, it's going to be difficult for the running backs to keep up, even a Saquon Barkley, even a DeAndre Swift, because you have five guys who could be not just the wide receiver one, but challenge that sort of 24, 25 point per game area. I was doing a little bit of research yesterday to sort of calibrate my expectations using the Rotoviz screener. There have been eight wide receiver seasons this century with at least 24 points per game, two from the aforementioned Brown, two from Randy Moss. Not surprising with how good those guys are, one each from Marvin Harrison, although Beckham, 
Cooper Cup did it last year. Devontae Adams did it in a game where he did miss a few games, uh, in a season where he missed a few games. The previous year, we had three 20-point-per-game receivers last year, three the year before. 2019 was a little bit of a down season, but 2018 there were six. I think we could easily have six 20-point-per-game wide receiver seasons this year. We've got seven really obvious candidates, including your favorite and maybe the coolest story from week one where A.J. Brown, I mean, he, he looked superhuman, right? And, and those seven guys, that doesn't even count Debo Samuel, who I think is a dark horse candidate to do it again after he did it just last year. There are so many receivers to be excited about. The Adams thing, one note from stealing signals that was so so encouraging is even though, yes, he can't have a 49% target share every single week, it was as concentrated as we wanted it to be. Hunter Renfro and Darren Waller both had six targets. There was one other target to any other receiver or tight end. So it's those three guys. And, and yeah, Waller and, and, and Renfro might take a few more, but Adams is going to have a 30% target share. I mean, if they're only throwing to three players down the field, they're going to check down a decent amount, et cetera. But, and, and just if he's getting that open, you don't even have to sit there and do the math necessarily. He's sending cornerbacks 30 yards the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, that's an exaggeration, but 10 yards the wrong direction with some of his routes. There was that little in and out route where he just stops on the sideline. And the DB is running towards the middle of the field for like five more steps. And Adams is already over here. He's catching the ball like a punt. I mean, he's so wide open. Route running uh, is very important. And he's so, so good at it. Probably undervalued it a little bit with Keenan Allen as well. It's interesting because those are, I mean, those guys have loved for a really long time for exactly that reason. But Keenan Allen looked great before his hamstring injury as well. You mentioned the route running, Ben. Can I throw in, I know this is kind of out of left field, but... We didn't get the full volume I was hoping for with Rashad Bateman, but one of the puff pieces that caught my eye this offseason was how Bateman was training with Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams was kind of his hero. He wanted to be that kind of route runner. The Ravens-Jets game, especially early, was gross because of the weather, and they didn't hook up on some of their early plays. But I mean, was there a receiver more wide open on any play all weekend than Rashad Bateman's 55-yard touchdown? I mean... He showed the yeah. speed that you're looking for from a vertical receiver in that offense. You want to have more volume, but I'm pretty excited about those Bateman shares. Yep. Uh, I think you have to be. The The Ravens were plus 7% pass rate over expected. Didn't, I mean, did what they did last year when Dobbins was hurt, right? They said, we're not going to run our offense through Kenyon Drake. We're going to throw. Uh, Bateman's route's not like amazing, but I didn't really think they were that big of a concern. He was very clear of anyone else not named Andrews in the offense. Didn't have the great game. People who are, you know, looking at this box score probably saying, man, without that long touchdown, he would have been screwed. But they also only ran like 52 plays, which is in part because they were playing Joe Flacco, got out to a lead, and then Joe Flacco offenses when they're down because he loves to check down so much. You're just going to matriculate the ball down the field in a way that doesn't make you competitive and the defense doesn't care if you do it. But they ended up throwing the, – the Jets ended up throwing 59 passes. So it's a situation where even though the Jets get blown out, they throw more passes than the Ravens even run plays. The Ravens basically ran no plays in the second half of that game as the Jets had these really long, slow drives that the Ravens were happy to give them because it just locked in their win basically by you know not getting beat deep for any kind of big plays. And so, yeah, you just have Flacco moving the ball nice and slow down the field. 
that hurts their overall. I mean, even though they were pass heavy versus expectation, it hurts their overall pass volume in a way that isn't the way that the Ravens typically have low pass volume because they're, they're a team that can play fast and can run a lot of plays. And if they get into a competitive game, we'll throw a lot more and Bateman's numbers will be a lot better. I, I was very encouraged by him as well, but yeah, you were talking about the 24 point per game guys. I think you said there were seven since 2000. I don't have that number right in front of me. You said there were three 20 point per game guys in the last couple of years. And you said, we're going to probably, you know, we might have seven this year. I think we might have three 24 point per game guys this year in the same year. Right. And there's only been like seven since two, 2000. So we're talking about one every maybe three years. We did get cup last year. We got Adams two years ago. It is becoming more common and more frequent. We've gotten Brown a couple of times in the last decade you mentioned. But Cup looked like the exact same player that for 17 weeks last year was incredible. And then for the four postseason weeks was even better and had 21 games of ridiculous production. I wrote in Stealing Signals that for Thursday night, I was kind of feeling pretty good about myself for my argument that Cup should never have not been the wide receiver one. He was always looking, you know... pretty solid to, to, to be able to continue this because of what he did all the way through the postseason and teams just couldn't stop it. And he did the exact same thing. looked the exact same way. And then cup hasn't even played another game, but by Sunday I watched Justin Jefferson and I said, okay, now I get it. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, I obviously was very high on Justin Jefferson too, and totally understand how, how you know, his upside case and, and what, what could, could happen there. But, and we drafted him at 104 on several of our streams that we did for the listeners. Yeah, we really enjoyed uh, taking a lot of Jefferson. It's weird to say, but Cup could be Cup again, and Jefferson could still be better. And that's basically what the argument is. I think part of my argument was, how does how does Jefferson really bury Cup? Because I think Cup is, has such a high floor and, and ceiling, and I think he's going to have another incredible year. But watching Jefferson in week one, he ends up with 185 yards. He could have had 250 easily if the Packers were at all competitive. I mean, the whole offense revolved around him and the, the Packers couldn't even get close to stopping. You want to talk about good route running. I mean, that guy is wide open every single play. Talked about it all last year. Obviously we love Justin Jefferson, but there's another guy that's a real good candidate for 24 plus points per game. I mean, I, I feels it's been one week and we, you know, we, we love to overreact, but it feels almost hard to imagine outside of injury, how Jefferson or cup, doesn't hit 24 points per game in this year. I mean, they're going to be so incredible. And then Chase, who we argued all offseason as people kind of drifted him outside of those top two, should be in with those top two, somehow looks disappointing by comparison with like a 16 target, you know, 10 catch, whatever he had game. He gets one touchdown that was a clear touchdown, basically not counted because of, in my opinion, poor refereeing. The guy's right on top of it. And then really poor decision by Zach Taylor to hurry up to the line and run on first down. The hurrying up and running at the goal line works and is effective and it makes sense. If it doesn't hurt your own team. I mean, that's a situation where you want to see the replay because it was pretty clear that Chase had gotten the ball over on the first look, at least to me. And they went ahead and hurried up and ran and mixing good stuff for a two-yard loss. Now you're second and goal at the three. And they ended up scoring. Touchdown at that point. Yeah, and, and then it's no longer a sure touchdown. They end up not scoring on four downs. They do end up scoring on the ensuing drive, and I saw some people say it didn't matter because Chase got open and scored on the ensuing drive. Maybe it didn't totally matter for Chase's numbers. There's obviously a, a scenario where he scores twice still at the end of that game. We don't know how aggressive the Bengals would have been if it was a tie game. Or well, if you they can force a three and out even after you kicked off. It, it doesn't. It's not only 
that you stop them because they were down there at the one yard line and they were stopping the Steelers basically every drive easily. You yeah. score and then you score again. Yeah, keep scoring, right? And and Chase had the other one where he made the ridiculous one-handed catch and had his toe on the line just before the touchdown. That did count right at the end of regulation. Should have been the game winner. The Bengals, obviously, long snapper injury is just sort of a comedy of errors. They get the extra point blocked, and then they also miss a short field goal. And overtime, end up losing that game, even though they massively outproduced Pittsburgh offensively. But Chase, you know, I, I say he almost looks disappointing by comparison. Looked incredible. Right. Could have had an even bigger game himself. He's an easy candidate for 24 points per game. Obviously, the Higgins concussion bolsters him a little bit in that particular game. But still, I mean, he looked I mean, people are concerned about his target share, particularly he had like 16 targets. They threw a ton. They, they ran 94 plays more than any team ran all of last season or in week one because they played five quarters and the Steelers couldn't do anything, like you said. So they just got to run an absurd amount of plays. They threw 50 something passes. But Chase has a really strong game. If you look at it from like a market share perspective, target share perspective, maybe not as high, but like 16 targets is 16 targets. Adams looks like a guy who can put up 24 per game. Diggs looks like a guy who can put up 24 per game. Maybe not quite on the same level. I would definitely have Adams over Diggs like you do in your rankings. That's the top five. And at six, you moved A.J. Brown right there. It looks like in your final rank you had him at seven. I, I did as well. So we were both you know on A.J. Brown as the very next receiver after the, you know, the, the top six go off, he looked incredible. Right. And so the fun numbers on him, he ran 40 routes. His career high is 42. He had broken 40 routes twice in his Tennessee career in three seasons. I talk a lot about how the Tennessee offense wasn't necessarily perfect for him. He also ran a 95% route share. He's only hit that route share. I think like four times in his Tennessee career very frequently was in this like 83 to 86% route range because Tennessee would do the stuff where they do like power formations and then run some play actions off of that and not even have a wide receiver on the field necessarily. And so they're already a team that's not throwing a ton, but then they were mixing in, you know, 10 or 15% of their passes are plays where they don't even have AJ Brown on the field. And so part of it with the Eagles was, okay, they could throw more than the Titans ever did. They're not just one low volume offense to another. And they did in this game throw quite a bit. They might not every week, but they did. And then also, A.J. Brown might actually get 95% of the routes instead of the 85% that he was getting at times. So he gets all the way up to 40 routes in his first game, both from a bump in you know overall pass numbers and his share, which he never – it was never bad with Tennessee, but it was never quite elite. And, I mean, look what he does. <laughs> like, that's all you needed was A.J. Brown to be able to run 40 routes, wins at every at every depth. They only took one deep shot really all game. They're ADOT as, a, as an offense. I'd like to see them throw down field more. Their ADOT is only 4.1. But A.J. Brown winning all over the short area of the field. People were concerned about Jalen Hurts' ability to throw on in-breaking routes. But A.J. Brown is a lead at in-breaking routes, immediately a non-issue, right? Once you have A.J. Brown in the offense, that's where I get into people sometimes are getting too, too precise with data, right? Oh, Jalen Hurts can't throw the in-breaking route, so this is actually not that great of a fit for A.J. Brown. Well, now that he has A.J. Brown, he's, he's suddenly very, very good at throwing that pass. So, anyway... Uh, AJ Brown, fantastic week one too. Well, it is interesting because our advanced stat explorer, when you look at some of the passing numbers, the first thing that did jump out to me was just how low the air yards per attempt was for Hertz. The other thing, he comes in as one of the least accurate quarterbacks from week one. And I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that, having watched all of these games, but, and that's in terms of on target percentage, right? But, you, I mean, you think about this game, and, yeah, Devontae Smith wasn't involved. He's one of the players where 
I'm not really changing my thesis very much. I think you have to move him down a little bit because Brown was such a massive target hog, but Devonte Smith is good. And he's one of those players where you have a first game like this, especially when he missed a lot of that time during training camp, he's going to come back out and be himself. I don't think that there's any real concern about that. Maybe his ceiling is a little bit more capped than we would like. I'm not worried about him. It, it is a situation where now you can't necessarily start him with any confidence in week two. Hopefully in most cases you put your team together to where you don't necessarily need him in week two, but he can be a big part of dominating the bye weeks as things go along. But this is a game where they did not throw it down the field and Jalen Hurts probably didn't play as well as he can play as well as they were talking about him playing in training camp in the preseason, all of those types of things. This Eagles offense has room to grow from this and be a lot better. I loved all your notes there on the routes. And that was one of the things that really got me to continually move AJ Brown up my rankings as sort of the, the off season and the preseason progressed. You and I do have a fun team that is Christian McCaffrey, AJ Brown, Tyreek Hill. That team has Jalen Hurts. That combination of Brown and Hurts now looks very, very fun. It's one of the teams that we're most excited about. The potential fly in the ointment could actually end up being Christian McCaffrey there, which is not <laughs> what you would necessarily think. We'll talk about yeah. him on the running back show, but I'm not I, I'm not that concerned about him. Good, good. Just hearing you say that makes me feel a little bit better. You mentioned uh, the situation there with C.D. Lamb, and I just want to reiterate again that as I was talking about how we want to react to week one, and I'm a pretty big believer that one of the issues that people can run into is they underreact, right? I didn't think that the players who played in the Thursday night game were drafted efficiently on Friday and Saturday in all of those different formats where you can actually watch the first game then still draft a team, play people based on what they did. And I think that they're, because we're so used to everyone saying, don't overreact, don't overreact, I think we don't move players enough sometimes. That doesn't mean that you're always going to be right. I think that there's a tendency to keep players more or less where they are so that you don't make a big move and then someone comes around later and says, oh, this was an overreaction. Don't you understand how fantasy works? And it's like, well, I mean, I could keep all my rankings the same, but then you lose out on all the ones that it was important to have moved them. I think being overly conservative, you're going to be wrong one way or the other. It's okay to be wrong occasionally overreacting as opposed to being wrong because you constantly underreacted. Now, as I'm looking through my rankings here. Which, and, and sorry, before we switch that, there's such an interesting psychological element there, but the other part of overreacting is you do gain an edge on, you know, the market, which, which as you sort of just alluded to, tends to underreact. And so you can make, I think, a very strong case that Sidney Lamb should be argued, you know, should be ranked in the wide receiver 23 range where you put him right now. I don't think people are probably jumping him back that far. And yet, because you're willing to do that, it opens up a lot of possibilities. I got asked from a subscriber if I would trade CeeDee Lamb for Gabriel Davis straight up. You have Gabriel Davis now ranked 12th. I mean, looking at your rankings, that's a pretty clear swap. And I was inclined to say yes on that as well. I don't think Lamb is completely dust or anything, but we are talking about probabilistic ranges. And you, I mean, the, there is also this element of the market. And so I think it's fair to probably still be optimistic about Lamb. He got a ton of targets. The routes went up. There are elements here that he's been efficient in the past. If their backup quarterbacks can play, 
decent. You know, Sean, we always talk about your team that won it all with, with Josh McCown as the quarterback. I'm thinking, you know, if they can get Josh McCown level quarterback play, then maybe Lamb can be what Alshon Jeffrey was that year, right? But there's no guarantee there. And there is a lot of risk now. So I think you can make the case that, okay, Lamb's still going to get a ton of targets. Some of the stuff we saw in week one, he's going to run a ton of routes. They threw him a ton of targets. The efficiency can't be this bad. He can't catch two of 11 targets every week. You could still have him high, but that doesn't really gain you any edge necessarily. And I also think there's a case to be made. Now his range is a lot wider is essentially where I'm landing. And when you talk about the probabilistic ranges, when you put him out wide receiver 23, you're emphasizing, I think, the downside that now exists there. And that's just undeniable, especially without Dak and with how bad the offense looked before Dak got hurt. And if you're willing to take that stand, like I said, it just, it opens up tons of opportunities before maybe Lamb has another bad game. And then everyone's ranking him there. Which, which I, is squarely in 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 the in the range of outcomes. He has another bad game in week two. He, every, okay, now now we react, right? And, and people will start to react more at that point. And at the end of this article, I kind of put the top fifty wide receivers into groups of sort of the the buy low, sell low, buy high, sell high, and wait and see. And then just a little quick note afterwards, saying if you're going to sell low, don't give the player away. But selling low means to sell now after you've lost a little bit of value as opposed to selling in a month when the value has absolutely cratered. It's okay to sell low on some players if you actually are projecting them to drop. As I'm looking at the rankings here, I actually think there's a pretty decent argument for Lamb to be more like wide receiver 19. I think that you know, as a few days go by and someone that you had on some teams and some teams otherwise maybe you're awesome. And you're thinking, if I just hadn't made that mistake, then I'd be sitting pretty right now. Just the, the psychology comes into it both ways. I think that when we talk about players we were wrong on, it's interesting because you look at the players that you're right on in week one and almost universally, you're going to think, okay, my thesis was correct. I know what I'm doing. You know, people should have listened to me on this player. This is how it's going to be. That's not necessarily true, but that's how that's how you almost universally think about it. On players where you were wrong, you tend to either think, well, you know, Kyle Pitts. It's like the Atlanta Falcons look good. Marcus Mariota looked good. Drake London looked fantastic. This team should be able to score some points. It's a little bit unfortunate that they got way ahead and then didn't have to be aggressive. It's super unfortunate that Arthur Smith made some bad decisions and that Marcus Mariota, despite playing really well, actually made a couple of key mistakes that really hurt them. The Falcons should have won this game easily. I don't think that they're going to win most of their games easily. I think that Kyle Pitts is still a great play. That's the kind of thing that you think when you're wrong on things, especially if there's some context that would lead you to believe that. You do have some players, though, where you feel like you were so wrong (laughs) that maybe you do go a little bit in the opposite direction where it just does feel like the sky is falling. For me, Liam fits into that category. But again, I I think justifiably, you have to move him way down. And just like you mentioned in the intro, it feels like the mistake happened because we let ourselves get talked into a volume play. And it's just so crucial to never do that. But on the flip side, part of the volume play with Lamb was that he's been very efficient so far and was that he has the efficiency and the good player element to him yeah, I think you can bet on that. And we kind of bet yeah. on those things together. But one of the things that you always talk about, and I think is the the way that you have to look at wide receiver play, is that drawing the targets is the skill. The efficiency comes from both the receiver and the quarterback and kind of the overall scheme. It comes from those three things. So it's not like wide receiver talent doesn't factor in. 
but a guy who is efficient at a certain talent uh, target level because that's where he can get open and legitimately draw targets. If you then get into a situation where you have to force him the ball, the quality of the targets drops in many cases, not in all cases. I mean, one of the things that we thought about C.D. Lamb was just they had not featured him the way that you have to feature someone of that ability level. Well, that doesn't look great <laughs> through the first week, especially because, I mean, he doesn't get open. And then, I mean, he's been very disappointing at the at the catch point. I mean, he's just not yeah. doing a great job. I think you put that – I think you put that incredibly well, where the efficiency is, you know, both, on both the quarterback and the receiver, but also the scheme. Are you, you know, is the coordinator, is the offense good at scheming really easy and open looks and using the player correctly? And then also this element that, like, we can think Lamb is good, but to scale up to, oh, they're throwing to this guy every single time and he's still making plays every single time, you have to be elite. And, I mean, that was sort of the question. So that's why a lot of people didn't want to rank Lamb too high. Maybe he's not at that level yet. He hadn't really shown enough yet to, to to be certain he had been at the level. That's the mistake I think I made was hoping that the efficiency would maintain even with the routes and everything going up and expecting the more volume because we saw the volume, but he's not an A.J. Brown level receiver. I mean, you just talked about if they're throwing to him constantly. They threw to A.J. Brown constantly. A.J. Brown had a massive target share. We talked about their low A dot. They only had 130 air yards or something, and, and Brown had uh, 94 of them. He had 72% of their air yards. I mean, there are only a few receivers that are as productive as he was and as efficient as he was on the volume when they're the only guy doing anything, right? And, and A.J. Brown is a part of that very small list. Devontae Adams is a part of that very small list. Jamar Chase, Justin Jefferson, Cooper Cup. I'm not even sure Stephon Diggs is a part of that list, and you actually have him as a, a sell high, so you're not necessarily buying either. There's a very limited number of players that it really doesn't matter what the defense is trying to do. They're just that good. And I would sell very high on Diggs. If you're going to sell, get some pretty awesome stuff back. I think that Gabriel Davis is – and I apologize for saying it that way. I know that's not the name now, but it's it's such a pretty name that way. Um, he's going to get what Diggs did in week one is going to open him up for even more volume. I, I don't think that you can have enough Davis shares at this point. Yeah. I mean, I think he's going to be, you have him ranked 12th. I was, I don't know if I wrote it in ceiling signals, but I was thinking he's going to be my, one of my bold predictions was that both Diggs and Davis would finish in the top 10 because basically what happened, I felt really good about, that prediction after watching the game that Davis would, would be able to do stuff downfield and be productive, but maybe not have a massive target share and digs. It would, it would free up all these short passes for Dixon. He'd have some big games. But I, I was thinking after that game with my, my bold prediction, like he's, he's going to be wide receiver nine, wide receiver eight. I mean, I think he's going to get more volume than just the five targets some weeks, but um, you haven't ranked 12th. And I, I think you're low on it. <laughs> I could be the two guys immediately in front of him. T Higgins, obviously there are going to be some health related issues there in order to actually be the wide receiver 11 the rest of the way he he can't miss too many games Jalen Waddle wide receiver 10 that's one that I think will be very interesting I, I like that the guy you have at wide receiver eight I, I have a bone to pick with okay well we'll get there in just one I, before we before we move on from it I wanted to ask if you agree with the top five but also I wanted to point out that I mean, again, these ideas of the target share and, and can that be a problem? It definitely can be a problem. But when you're talking about one of possibly the greatest wide receiver talents ever, 
Jamar Chase just had a 29-point game on a week where Joe Mixon had 36 opportunities. So they're not going to run that many plays very often, as you pointed out. But also, as they run fewer plays, most of the volume has to come out of Joe Mixon, who is just a complete waste on the offense. Now, again, the the biggest concern with the Bengals was it just looked like the first month of last season. They couldn't block anybody. They had to adjust and not do some of the things that I have to assume they intended because, I mean, it looked like those old, not Derek Carr, but David Carr commercials with the Houston Texans where, I mean, he's just out there with the center. And the, and the defense Burrow is getting through. absolutely destroyed. I do think we can give some of that credit to the Steelers' defense, which might not look as great now that TJ Watt's going to be out for a little bit of time. And and that sounds like it might not be that long. But the Steelers have a good defense, have oh goodness. talent. and Unbelievable. And, and even if they, like, I, I, I'm qualifying this by saying, even if they don't look great the rest of the way, I don't think we can criticize the Bengals too, too much because of that but their offensive line you know they brought in a lot of upgrades doesn't necessarily have the continuity yet it has to play better as well but hopefully right that's not every week for burrow that was that was every week last year he took a ton of sacks so i have jefferson cup chase adams Diggs. they were my top five to start the season after watching cup and Diggs on thursday night just like you were saying i was thinking well cup probably moves ahead of jefferson Diggs probably moves ahead of Adams, but then we did get the verification of the positive thesis for those two players as well. I know it's so crazy. As good as Cup and Diggs were on Thursday night, I'm right there with you. Jefferson, I think, would be my wide receiver one right now. Adams would be my wide receiver four. So I, yeah, to your question, I agree. I agree right through to to wide receiver seven. You have Brown six. You have Tyree Kill seven, and Tyree Kill looked great. They moved him around a lot. If you go look at his next gen stats. Uh, route chart, a lot of movement. Even his two catches of more than 20 air yards were on plays where the route starts sort of horizontal, horizontally, laterally, and then it curves up the field because he was in motion. And so they're doing a lot of that in a way that doesn't allow player, you know, defenders to line up straight in front of him and stop him from running freely. That's obviously great for a guy with his speed and his ability. Um, he could have had a long touchdown on the first snap, but but Tua got a bad snap and wasn't able to get the handle on it and, and short hopped him. If he gets the ball to Tyreek, he was pretty wide open about 25 yards downfield, probably runs away from everyone. So I think Tyreek is the the wide receiver seven as well. I really like your top seven. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I have Michael Pittman number eight. My final rank on him was 18. That obviously was below his final ADP of nine. And one of the things that I always want to do and force myself to do as well is to react even if it doesn't make my rankings look good and to... I mean, you need to admit that you're wrong, or at least possibly wrong. Incorporate in new information. I don't think that Michael Pittman looked amazing. I think that there are ways in which this could be an overreaction, but also, you know, I would benefit if it's an overreaction. So from that perspective, I'm trying to balance those things out because you know what your own incentives are. You have to fight back a little bit on that. For me, and I'm interested to hear, because you said that you're still selling this, which would be good for me in fantasy. <laughs> the Colts were so much worse than I expected. And I expected them to be worse than I think most people expected because one of the reasons that I had Michael Pittman, I mean, certainly not like in a range where you don't think he's good. I mean, wide receiver 18 is still in the range of people where I would expect him to have a very good season, right? So it's not saying, you know, Michael Pittman is is bad or people who were high on him are wrong. They're just were people I liked in between. But one of the reasons is that Matt Ryan is done. And it could be an issue here where even though Carson Wentz is not a good quarterback, it could be a downgrade in Indianapolis. That's definitely what it looked like through week one, where Carson Wentz, he goes out and does these Carson Wentz things, but also makes some actually pretty cool throws. But he gets one of the worst teams in football. So I don't expect that to continue necessarily. But I mean, I would have expected the Colts when they have a very weak division, when they're not necessarily going to be playing a brutal schedule to lead with a good defense, with this running back who, again, even with all of the other great talents, players like a Saquon Barkley, Nick Chubb, just, uh, I don't know if there's ever been a better pure rusher. I mean, Barry Sanders, Jamal Charles, di very different kinds of guys than Nick Chubb. <laughs> He looked unbelievable. But, I mean, Jonathan Taylor is this whole other thing. And he obviously had a ton of carries in this game. The Colts, as you, I'm sure, are going to know, ran a lot of plays. But I expected them to be in run scripts more than I think they're going to be in now. And Matt Ryan is also so bad that I don't think that he can elevate any of the peripheral players. It's unfair to kind of put it on rookies. A lot of rookies were either not involved or didn't play well. But Alec Pierce had a very poor game in the limited chances he had. Paris Campbell completely gone. I mean, if if Ashton Doolin is your wide receiver too, then Michael Pittman is going to have a 35% target share. They don't have tight ends either. <laughs> so, Well, everything you just described is not too dissimilar to CeeDee Lamb's situation, in my opinion. And I... I do think it was a, a positive for Pittman that Paris Campbell ran a ton of routes. We basically don't know if Paris Campbell's good because he's never run more than like 100 routes in a season, 120 routes, I think it is. It's like three games worth. He's played three seasons, but basically just not played. He ran a ton of routes in this game, only got four targets. That's a, that's a positive for Pittman, to your point. 
uh, and Alec Pierce having the bad drop. He also got rocked over the middle. And unfortunately, just saw today is having concussion-like symptoms. I was pretty surprised they didn't check him immediately on that because it was a helmet-to-helmet hit. It got flagged. It was one of the bigger hits you'll see. Uh, guy, the safety just teeing off on him over the middle on an incomplete pass. At what pass. point in the game did that happen, Ben? I, I don't remember exactly, but I was like, no one seems to be taking this as seriously as I, I thought. You know, I thought it was a pretty huge hit, and so I, I, uh, not surprising, I would say that he is showing concussion-like symptoms now and probably uh, pretty unfortunate that they didn't check that better during the game, in my opinion. Um, I'm looking through the game log. It wasn't, it wasn't in the fourth. It was, you know, sometime earlier in the game, kind of working my way back. But anyway, looks like it was a first half play and he had the drop in the second half. So, I mean, maybe that's part of why he didn't play so well. That could very easily be the case. It was actually the first play of the, not going to play well. There's no way. Yeah. First play of the second quarter, it looks like. Um, just by looking at the game log and trying to figure out which of his two targets it was, the other one in the end zone was from the three-yard line. That was later in the game. So, yeah, that might have that might have played into it, honestly. He took a shot. It was a big, big hit. I watched that game on shortcuts, and so yeah. it goes pretty fast. I, I'm not sure that I caught that. Yeah, but good uh, good question about when it happened because that might have played into to his poor game. But, yeah, like you said, they, they played five whole quarters – because they, they ended up tying, right? They played through all the way through the, the overtime period. They got two extra drives in overtime. Ran 90 plays. I just talked about how the Bengals ran 94. It was more than any team all of last year. The Colts were right there at 90. They were – the leader last year was 93. I don't know how many games hit 90 last year. But we had two teams in week one that had just a ridiculous amount of play volume. Basically a half game more than average. Usually the average is about 63 plays. When you're getting up over 90, you're adding 30 more plays. So that's a ton, ton, ton more volume. They were still 7% to the negative in pass rate over expected. They were behind and they were like, we are screwed. We're giving the ball to Jonathan Taylor every single time. It was very similar, actually. We talked a little bit in the intro. You talked about Saquon Barkley. I'm excited to get to him on the running back show. But the Giants were surprisingly incredibly run heavy, but in part because they were like, we can't do anything passing the ball, right? And so we saw that a little bit from the Colts late. I think they were trying to throw the ball early. They wound up with 50 pass attempts, which is a lot. But on a 90-play game and in and, and the negative script, they frankly should have thrown 60 or more. You talked about them not being necessarily in run scripts going forward. I think we saw a little bit of like the Tennessee Titans with Derrick Henry at his peak from their play calling, which was we don't have a choice. We just have to keep giving the ball to Jonathan Taylor 31 times. It was a really bad game in my estimation for Naheem Hines, who – ends up having a decent box score game, catches six passes. But, like, this is the script. 90 plays, 50 pass attempts where you're supposed to catch a bunch of balls, and Jonathan Taylor runs more routes because it seems like we got to keep Taylor on the field. This is what you and I talked about all offseason. When the push comes to shove, you keep Jonathan Taylor on the field. You don't want to be the back who's sharing a backfield with Jonathan Taylor. And for Taylor's line where he looks so bad as a receiver and you're thinking, well, maybe that pushes them to use Hines more, when you watch the game, that's not the takeaway. He looked fine as a receiver, and I believe his biggest gain was called back on a penalty. His biggest gain in the receiving game. And more importantly, again, is I, not even necessarily watching the game. It's it's looking at the numbers. This is a hind script. They were in comeback mode, and they went very run-heavy. They had this negative pass rate, and Taylor ran more routes. They didn't do any of the fourth quarter hurry up that should be Naheem Hines on the field for the whole thing. That's the whole thesis with him, right? This is the game where he catches 10 balls and he catches six and gets like four carries and, and Taylor gets 31. 
He didn't get any low value touches. It was all just those couple of receptions. Very, very poor outcome for him based on the way the game went. But in terms of Pittman, he had a very good game. I want to be clear about that. But I had him ranked like wide receiver 17. I got, you know, somebody on Twitter was like, oh, are you ready to admit that, you know, I think it was, you're still fading Pittman because I had him as a fade. At wide receiver 17, he was going, you know, wide receiver 12 range. My argument was he didn't have top 10 upside. I still don't think he does. I mean, this was a very good game. Nine catches, 121 yards, and a TD. Very, very good game. But again, 50 pass attempts and everything. You just talked about how bad their pass game looked. There's going to be games that are a lot worse than this. When you run 90 plays, that opens things up. His targets per, He ran a ton of routes, right? His targets per out run were good, but they were like a percentage point higher than last year. It wasn't like he took some huge step forward. Small sample, right? He could still have 30% target, target share, targets per out run games. I'm not making the same concerns with Jamar Chase, who had basically the same situation where his targets per run weren't crazy because there was so much pass volume. And I am, you know, getting excited about like AJ Brown having a massive targets per run. So look, small sample stuff. I'm being picky there. And I understand that's not necessarily the right way to look at it. But as far as Pittman's concerned, like this is the game I would have expected from him too. Much like I just said from Hines, he is their number one. None of the other receivers were stepping up. You would expect in a 50 pass attempt game, that he would have this type of game. And in that context, 121 yards in a TD, look at the Justin Jefferson, Cooper Cup, Jamar Chase games. I know he's not supposed to be in that class, but this is the game where he should have had 170, 180 yards if he's that player. To me, again, we just talked about the, uh, the elite talent and being able to overcome circumstance. He did catch nine of his you know 13 targets. He was efficient, Pittman. But whether it's his quarterback or his scheme or the run-heavy offense or what have you, this final line, relative to how many plays they ran, the fact that they played five quarters and every other element of it, I mean, look, Pittman looks very good, but people have had him ranked as a like the like essentially like the 12th overall receiver. And now you have him eighth. And I just don't think he's that good in this to overcome what I expect from this offense going forward. What I said is okay, I had him 17th, but I but in part of the reason I was calling him a fade at his price in the early third is I want the guy to have a lead upside. I didn't think he had a lead upside. If I missed on him, I felt like it would be a small miss and I was okay with that at that cost. I think I definitely would move him up. I said in stealing signals, I think he'll finish maybe wide receiver 12 to wide receiver 14. After watching this game, he did take a little bit of a step forward in the targets per run. He was efficient in week one. There was a lot of elements to be excited about. But just the sheer volume and the setup of this game against the Texans, no less, indoors, like there's no elements that should have limited him from having a monster game if he's a top 10 player. Again, I ranked him wide receiver 17. I feel like, yeah, he's probably going to beat that, but he's not going to crush me. I This game should have been bigger if I, if I want to be worried about Michael Pittman. I think all of those things are true. And you again, it's a situation where if it goes a little bit differently, then as you mentioned, he could look a lot like CD Lamb. And that would be a concern. So you say you would move him down. So I have Debo at nine. His situation now, I mean, he's just gonna get this really cool Frankenstein workload. <laughs> he's probably the best inside the 10 runner in football. They don't have a running back they don't have their tight end it doesn't look like 
they're going to need to go through him. I still am, am very – my first thing in watching this game is that even with the horrible conditions, he looks like an absolute superstar. I just don't think that people win in a big way by betting against superstars. Waddle has the long touchdown. He showed the game-breaking ability, and I think that as – the season progresses this offense is going to be absolutely fantastic for him i'm glad that we have so many shares of him in the early and even some in the late fourth higgins down to 11 with the uncertainty davis 12 judy at 13 which i think is still a little bit controversial bateman at 14 amon ra at 15 Amon Ra actually played pretty poorly early and jerry goff did not look as good as i was hoping but then he kind of piles it on late so any specific concerns with those rankings? And then where would you slide Pittman in with that group? I would have Waddle, Higgins, Gabe, and Debo all ahead of Pittman, who are the four you have immediately behind Pittman. Uh, I agree with you on Waddle. I thought the explosive play was awesome, just giving him a little bit of space after the catch, and he just goes to the house, right? And so now having Tyreek in the offense is going to create that. He didn't get a lot of the easy gimme catches. Tyreek got a ton of those. He did get a handoff. I think there's reason to believe that he might get more of the, you know, easy PPR points that the Tyreek got a, a decent amount of more of them throughout the season, not more than Tyreek, but uh, more of them than he got in week one. And this is the opposite of the Bengals and the Colts game where the Dolphins just really didn't need to do anything in the second half. And so their guys didn't get that stat padding that they still should get in a lot of games later in the season. Yeah, they did actually interestingly have the highest pass rate over expected and, and throw a little bit in the second half i was pleased by that that they were willing to throw with a lead but that was in part because of the lowest expected pass rate in the entire league because like you said they were winning so they were still running it's just the fact that they threw it all made them look like they were a very pass aggressive team higgins i would still have very you know very comfortably high and, and i want to be clear like I don't think Pittman's bad. It's a lot of it is offense, right? I still think there's a lot of scenarios for Higgins that can be really positive in this offense. Gabe Davis, I said I would have over Pittman. If Pittman was in the Gabe Davis role in the Bills offense, I would rank him higher than I would rank Gabe Davis. I feel pretty confident that Pittman's a good player at this point. It's just that like I don't think necessarily either of them is elite. And and it's that next level that we were talking about that that we don't think necessarily CeeDee Lamb has shown that he has yet. Davis being with the Bills and what I expect from their offense going forward, being a lot more confident in it. Yeah, he didn't get anywhere near the targets Pittman got in week one. Yes, he has more competition, but the efficiency is going to be there for him. And he's going to get the downfield looks. He's going to get the red zone looks. He's going to score more touchdowns than Pittman, I would guess. Obviously, Pittman can score touchdowns. Big physical receiver. Kind of a beast, honestly. Like, I like Pittman. I just, I, I have not understood having him in the top, you know, 15. And then now having him in the top 10 in this offense, particularly like, like we were saying, the, the lack of target competition less than ideal or, or you know, for, for faders, good for Pittman drafters and, and for Pittman himself. And he's been good. But part of my argument was last year when he didn't have much target competition, he wasn't dominant. He was very good. He was like wide receiver 17 on the season. And people expected a step forward because there's no target competition there again. And the offense like there was no almost looks worse last year. What's that? Yeah, and there was, it does look worse, and there was no target competition last year. His numbers and his trajectory have not justified where he was drafted. It still may work out. I haven't ranked there. I, I think that... Yeah, again, it still what, might What I out. think that you're saying is 100% accurate. 
they're not going to throw 50 passes again all year based on how run heavy they went and based on the fact that they ran 90 plays, which they won't do again all year. I mean, they might have one other crazy game, but this is going to be their top two most pass attempts in any game all season. And so from that perspective, it might end up being one of Pittman's best games all season as well. I mean, I think he'll have some games where he really consolidates targets and and also has other good games. I think he's going to have plenty of good – again, I ranked him wide receiver 17. I'm now saying I think he'll finish wide receiver 12 to 14, something like that, better than last year. But he's just not top 10 for me yet. Debo is the other one I didn't get a chance to mention, but I'm with you. Like the – got carries at the four and six yard line. He looks like their goal line back. <laughs> good mean, luck stopping him in there. I mean, yeah, and good luck stopping him. And, uh, you know, obviously a terrible weather game. The receiving numbers weren't fantastic. Ayuk looked good running downfield in the little bit of work that he got. But I thought Lance looked pretty solid. I think the, the Niners offense is going to bounce back next week. I mean, you got a 30% target share for their goal line back. <laughs> I mean, Debo is going to be is going to be pretty amazing. I, I do want to ask you about the Broncos in part because this one I think does matter. And in part because we had kind of the fun off season, well, immediately when it happened and then the sort of the running storyline with me thinking the Seahawks trading Russell Wilson was a slam dunk. Now then, you know what they he do with those bad, picks. Sean, he looks so bad. Oh it, my God. He looks so bad. It was shocking really. Wasn't it? Yeah. Because you look at this game. So I have Judy 13th. I have Sutton 18th. It's really very tight within that group. I do think there's actually a tear break after Cortland Sutton at 18, which is one of the reasons why I said CD Lamb probably belongs right in that 19 range. The guy I have ranked 19th, Mike Williams, was tragically uninvolved in the Chargers game. So you, you have seven targets. For each of Judy and Sutton, you have 121 air yards for Sutton, just 73 for Judy. We know that when you have similar target numbers and one player has more air yards, that there are more ways for the deep threat to score. It takes fewer hits. And yet we actually saw them complete the deep pass to Judy, who looked more capable of dealing with the struggles that Wilson was having, but also I think having some of these underneath routes may help because those are going to, I think, lead to, I mean, I would be surprised if you have too many more games like this and Judy doesn't really start to emerge in terms of total targets. Maybe that's not the case. Probably Russell will, I mean, Russell Wilson's going to bounce back to an extent. He's not going to go out there and underthrow both of these guys when they're more or less open by like seven to eight yards on <laughs> on deep shots. But I mean, there has to be a little bit of concern for Sutton that he's not going to be able to live up to the dream scenario. And uh, really in a game like this, you, you would have kind of preferred both of these guys to end up with more than seven targets on the final play of the game. I mean, the, the field goal at the end becomes so controversial, but on the play right before it appeared that he had Jerry Judy wide open and instead takes the check down to Javante Williams. Now on a, the running back side of things, Williams had a, a really cool, line as a receiver but I, I would have liked both of these guys to be more involved if you're heavily invested in either of them but especially Sutton I mean Russell Wilson's got to throw better passes Wilson was bad down the field uh should have been picked off in the end zone by Quandre Diggs on a on a sideline throw that you can't miss to the field side and he missed like 10 yards to the field side like you basically threw a punt up there for the safety to run under it I think that one was aimed towards Sutton and Sutton didn't really have a 
way to play defense on it. It was just there for the safety to run over and maybe try to make a play. He missed to the field side on a couple other sideline shots, which you just, again, can't do. That's where the defender is. You have the sideline. Those deep sort of, you know, rainbow bombs we talk about with Russell that he's so good at, he wasn't good at. <laughs> Even the Judy touchdown was massively underthrown. Great play by Judy at the catch point. To your point earlier about Lamb not looking great at the catch point. That's been a concern for me with Judy, frankly. Smaller receiver. He played big on that play. Caught the ball at the catch point and got away from the defender and then outran everyone. Looked fast. I mean, got all the way to the end zone. Very impressive individual effort. Russell did almost nothing to help him there. I thought Judy looked great. I thought this passing game was one that we need to wait and see on overall. Because we know for years the Seahawks have given up a ton of targets to running backs and a ton of targets to tight ends. They like to sort of take away some of the deep passing and, and allow for underneath throwing. Look like the Broncos' whole plan early on was we're just going to throw to the tight ends, like all seven of them, a ton. And by the way, people were really concerned about Alberto. His route rate ended up being pretty solid relative to what I expected watching the game. He had the catch down to the one. Still a little bit excited about him. And I think some of that, again, was game planned. It was designed to like Andrew Beck and all that stuff early was designed in the flow of game later on. They had Alberto running a lot of routes and were throwing to him a decent Once amount. they got out of the uh, sort of, as you mentioned, like goofy pre-planned stuff. And it's just one too where it's, it's impossible not to have touchdowns make a difference to you. People would be a lot more excited about him if he had gotten six more inches. And he got so close. And it would have been huge for the Broncos, obviously, because they fumbled, <laughs> I think, on the very next snap, right? That was one of the fumbles. But, yeah, the receiver's not having the huge game. I mean, I'm, I'm not even that concerned about Hamler, who only had one target, but ran 64% of the routes. That was exciting, actually, for me to see Hamler get out there that much. I think in other setups, they'll be able to get to the receivers more. I think the Seahawks are sort of the team. And it, it wouldn't shock me. I'm not an all-22 watcher. I can't break down the whole defense. But it wouldn't shock me if people who do know what they're talking about went and looked at it and said, Pete Carroll designed his whole offense around not allowing Russ to throw down the field. Because we talked about Javante Williams had all of those catches. The tight ends had all of those targets. And they were sort of effective moving the ball in those spots. They just failed at the goal line. I mean, ultimately, they should have won that game by a couple of touchdowns if they just get in uh, you know, on some of those opportunities late. Obviously, Seattle's offense played pretty well early, but then ran out of steam. And, and Denver didn't play amazing early and was kind of trailing. And then they got back into the game and, and frankly should have won going away, in my opinion even though they weren't getting the ball down the field because everything that Seattle was giving them underneath was actually effective in letting them move the ball. Again, they, they turn it over on downs, or I mean on fumbles at the one-yard line twice, and then on the last drive just decide to stop playing, you know, and kick a 64-yard field goal. When they're giving you everything underneath, fourth and five to me would have been pretty convertible for them the way that they were, you know, completing all these short passes. Is there any element there where I mean, we didn't see Wilson – scramble much in this game he just seemed rattled by the like the crowd noise and everything i mean he just seemed rattled it just seems like if he has his not even his peak athleticism but if he is more or less himself i mean one of the things i would have liked to have seen the play that kind of bothered me the most all weekend is when the falcons had a third and three from midfield with eight minutes to go and you pick up a first down you more or less end the game and instead of letting Mariota get out on the edge where he can throw to either Pitts or London or he can run himself, they try and bash it up the middle on third and three. It's not like it's third and six inches. You know, you got to get these running quarterbacks a chance to do what they do so well, which is pick up third downs. 
in the case with the Seahawks, you've got all of the, I mean, with the Broncos playing the Seahawks, they've got all of those weapons and you have an athletic quarterback. I mean, you got to let them make a play. It yeah. is kind of fun to see the confidence in the kicker. I mean, you're all your players want you to have confidence in him. He could have made that field goal and then it was close. we'd be looking at it differently. So I don't know if we'd be looking at it differently. I thought about that. I thought that would have been really interesting because they obviously got bashed with the miss and they wouldn't have got bashed as much, but I think I still would have been saying that was the dumbest decision I've ever seen. It was not particularly justifiable on any level, even if he buries a 64 yarder, but I'm with you on the rough stuff. And it seems, you know, there's all that conversation about how he wants to play out of the shotgun and maybe that, you know, doesn't allow him to be moving as much, you know, as under center and doing some play action from under center, some rollout stuff. Maybe that's going to be a problem for them all year. I don't know, but it looked bad and I'm willing to at least like wait and see what happens in a more normal game. I do think there's probably emotional stuff related to Russ being back in Seattle. I, it wouldn't surprise me if that looks like a very weird game at the end of the year relative to whatever else they do the rest of the year. Now they could still have struggles, but it might still look different those those future struggles right so broncos still going to be good seahawks still going to be pretty iffy yeah the seahawks and geno smith look great during the stuff that was very clearly scripted as soon as they had to adjust and react at all as you mentioned couldn't couldn't move the ball they only finished with 49 offensive plays lowest in the in the league panthers were the team that was one above them at 50 and, and we'll talk a little bit about that as it relates to mccaffrey you moved dj Moore way down too and I have, you know, I love him. I have a hard time with how to respond to what happened in that game because they did only run 50 plays and they looked so bad offensively. I mean, again, they only reason they were even in that game was a 50 yard pass to Ian Thomas on basically a blown coverage up the seam leads to a short McCaffrey touchdown and then a blown coverage over the top. Robbie Anderson, 75 yard TD. That was 125 of the passing yards, two big plays. Basically got nothing else going. That was, uh, I think, more than half of Baker's passing yards. I think he had about 100 in the rest of the game combined. They weren't able to get anything going rushing. Matt Rule looks like a horrible coach. All of those things. But at the same time, like, the Browns want to pound the ball, run the ball, run the clock. You knew it was going to be a slow game. They only ended up running 50 plays. I got to think there's going to be more plays going forward and more opportunity for DJ Moore to actually do some stuff. But they look they look terrible, too. Anyway. Setting that aside, I'm with you on, on Seattle. 49 total plays is not – I mean, as good as they looked early, they actually had some some drives early where they ran a decent number of plays. Maybe some of that's because they were pretty efficient on those early drives and didn't run a ton of plays. They didn't have any, like, 10-plus play drives. But still, later, like you said, after, after the big first half, just weren't able to get anything going. Weren't able to sustain drives, not able to run five, six, seven, eight plays on a drive. Denver really ran – you know, had the ball way longer – and for a lot more plays, 15 more plays. So anyway, I'm with you. I, I think that's going to go down as a weird game sort of for both teams. Seattle looked really good, but probably we shouldn't be too, too optimistic about them. And then, yeah, you were asking more about Judy and Sutton and, and their value. And Judy made that incredible play. It's easy to be really excited about him as a result because he looked great on that play. But Sutton didn't have a bad game either. He had like 72 yards in a game where – Again, the receiver's not very involved. So it's something that I you talked about not wanting to underreact, and we shouldn't underreact. We should be excited about Judy. But for the most part, I, I want to reserve too much of a reaction on, on Denver until I see another game. 
And Ben, that was so much fun going over the wide receivers with you. Obviously, we got a few more players in that 2025 range we didn't talk about. But before we leave, okay. And sorry to been a long Hit sorry to been a long uh, show, but there's a guy you moved up a few spots that you were a little more excited about all offseason than me that I really liked, and that's Juju Smith Schuster. Eight targets all in the first half. They blow out the Cardinals. They're blowing them out by halftime. They have a five-play touchdown drive to start the second half and get up to 30 points. I think it was 30 to seven at that point. Not really concerned about what happened from then on. Eight targets in the first half, had a ninth that was incomplete, but negated by a roughing the passer penalty so it doesn't show up in the stats. That was a downfield target, which is important because these eight targets he had, 10.3 ADOT, would have been even higher with the other down. I mean, he was actually running routes downfield a little bit, had space to operate. The whole offense had space to operate. It looked fantastic, but particularly, I think sort of my thesis on Kelsey throughout the offseason looked good, but... Juju looked like the other guy in that offense when it mattered, when they were doing things effectively. He looked more like his old self. Maybe he's not the 2018 version of himself, but he's now clearly in an offense where the, you know, his ADOT's not going to be three or six or whatever. And he's going to have some room to move around after the catch. The two fumbles sucked, but I was really, that was a guy, I don't have a lot of Juju. That was a guy in the middle rounds where I was like, I want to make trade offers for him and I'm afraid that I'm going to get buried by him in, in main events and, and in our high stakes stuff where I didn't want to draft him very much. Cause I thought he looked really good and, and could have a really good season. Yeah. I, the chiefs are always a hard team for me because there's so much emotional investment. I think they're going to end up with too many weapons for him to have a better than 21% target share very often. But the biggest takeaway I had was just, again, how much of a breath of fresh air it was to see him targeted at all depths. I mean, you mentioned that joking jokingly, the, the eight out of three or the eight out of six, you can use the NFL player stat explorer. You can go back and look at where the targets actually break down in some of his past seasons. You'll be able to track, obviously, going forward, what it looks like in 2022. In 2020, obviously, he wasn't healthy last year. In 2020, 59 of his 128 targets came within four yards of the line of scrimmage. So <laughs> he literally did have a 6.08 out that year. <laughs> it just, it, it'll be very fun. The other thing for me watching this game, and again, it's impossible to watch the games not through the lens of what you expect to have happen and what you want to have happen. I don't think that Hardman and MVS can be big volume impact players here. You see that 30-yard reception from Sky Moore, who more or less doesn't get to play. If yep. you're looking at weeks 9 through 17, Sky Moore is going to have a huge impact on this. This offense is going to be Kelsey, Juju, and Sky. I mean, that's – and I wrote – he only had 19 uh, uh, routes on 19% of dropbacks, which is less than 19. I mean, very, very limited routes for Sky. Had the 30-yard catch like you mentioned. I wrote this week to anyone, you know, we there was multiple paths with Sky, but this is a perfect example of what we talked about a little bit, Sean, pre-season, where the the rookies, you have time. Everything's going to move sort of in, in one direction for them, which is typically towards more work. And we didn't talk a lot about the rookies on the show, but a lot of them got a lot of work. Uh, Drake London over 80% routes. Jahan Dotson, Chris Alave over 80% routes. I see you have uh, Alave as a, as a buy low. I disagree there. Nine 
percent targets per route. Michael Thomas looked great. Jarvis Landry looked great. I think he's going to have a hard time running targets. Sort of the thesis that we already thought. He ran a ton of routes. Traylon Burks didn't get to run a lot of routes, but earned five targets on his 13. Garrett Wilson, 23% targets per route run. Very good for week one. Didn't get to run, you know, a full set of routes, but earned volume when he was out there. London on his high route share did also earn 23% targets per route run. Very good for a first game. But it seems to me like you're, you're, uh, you're leaning into being the Jarvis Landry guy now. Yeah, I am kind of leaning into that. Uh, he looked great. The rookie receivers as a whole looked fantastic. And the, the main point I'm trying to make is we had a lot of roles there that were already strong. Other ones that could get stronger quick in Burks, who's Robert Woods and Nick Westbrook at Kenny ran way more routes. Both had two targets all game. Burks has five on the 13 routes. Like pretty clear that he's got to be your guy. And, and I think they'll figure that out quicker than they did with AJ Brown a few years ago. Perks looked very good. Yep. Sky's the one that I got some questions about dropping. And I just wanted to say the reason I'm, I'm contrasting it is it doesn't have to look like that in week one. It can look like Sky. And the whole, the whole idea is even if he doesn't do a lot, we want to see him be efficient early. He has the 30 yard catch, like you said, on a very limited snap share. And everything in this offense looks so good that now, I, I mean, you're holding him as long as you possibly can. And if he gets cut, you're picking him up because if an injury happens to Juju or whatever, Meikle, or they just start to work Sky in more, which is probably going to happen regardless because he is this rookie and looked good already and might continue to look really good. He's going to be like, I, I completely agree. Down the stretch, the last six weeks or so, like you said, week nine to 17, whatever you just said, Sky Moore's going to be a big part of this offense. And you don't, I mean, it's not fun to wait, but it's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, it seems like it's going to happen unless he's just not good and that 30-yard catch was a sort of a fluke. But this offense and the offense looking great was a fluke or whatever. But I'm with you. I think Sky's going to come on big late. I still think Juju's going to be really big. I think it's going to be those three, and they're going to be awesome. Patrick Mahomes is winning MVP. You don't get any argument from me there. I will note that I, I just that I'm taking the other side. Not that you're wrong. I'm taking the other side on the uh, on the Saints. The whole game matters. So to say that Michael Thomas looked completely done in the first three quarters is somewhat irrelevant because he looked fantastic on those two touchdowns. I am still a little bit skeptical. Jameis Winston was awful in this game. Yeah. For a big chunk of it, it really looked like they should have just put Taysom Hill in and let him run every play. I'm not saying jump all over Thomas. I did argue that he doesn't look like his peak self at all. In in, in But – Part of my point on Alave is is what you just said. The Saints didn't look good. Where, why is why is Alave a buy low? Is my question. Well, just because because Thomas and Thomas. Landry are done. Yeah, I mean Landry's not going to catch those deep. I love Jarvis Landry. I've been above the market on Jarvis Landry forever. It may be a year this year where I don't have a ton of exposure, and he actually does crush, which would which would be great for him. He he deserves to be looked at in a very different light than he's looked at. I don't, and I have zero percent Alave. So it's not something where I need it to work out for anything I have going. He's the only rookie that I didn't think was a good sort of adjusted bet, right? I've, I've been telling people all season, even though I think there are plenty of red flags with the profile for Dotson and for the quarterback that Dotson has, that he's such a clear arbitrage play on Olave that you have to draft him instead. Through one week, that looks good. I mean, <laughs> I guess you still have to have a little bit of skepticism about the commanders, but I am glad that, He's on our chasing stolen bananas team. That team that we drafted with Pat and Pete has some things that need to improve, but also has some very fun pieces. And especially with Chris Godwin getting re-injured, 
I'm glad we have Dotson. I think that he could emerge as a star. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the Saints evolve. I do think that Olave is something they're going to need for that offense to work. So we'll see if, if he and, and then Alvin Kamara can do a little bit more than they've done. But I can't wait to talk running backs. We're going to be right back in real life in the fictional world of the podcast. We'll be back with you tomorrow, bringing you more on rest of season running back rankings. I'm Sean Siegel with me as always. is Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretch. Again, if you missed out on these Stealing Signals articles, you will be very sorry. Make sure you get signed up there. Make sure you sign up for Stealing Lines, Ben's project with Dalton Cates. We'd love to have you over at Rotoviz. I've enjoyed writing and interacting with the tools this week. We've had great articles out from Blair Andrews and a whole host of others. You can use the coupon code RBRadio2022 to get a 10% discount at checkout. Subscribe to the feed. Leave us a written review. We love you guys. We hope your week one went well. We'll talk to you tomorrow. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.